Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Steph Voyer, but not Barry Casson. Barry couldn't be here today. Hey, Steph, how's it going? Oh, Danny, I'm good. You know, I kind of feel like you have siblings. Do you ever feel like like this is the first time that your parents have gone away and you're not sure like what exactly to do with yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm a little like anxious to yeah. see what happens. I'm yeah. also like, how does his absence change our relationship? Like before we we had Barry to, I don't know, like triangulate or Maybe he got 50% of my attention and you got 50%, but what's it going to be like having 100%? I don't know. Like It's like we're on a date all of a sudden. <laughs> I think the good news is that I'm pretty sure he doesn't know how to listen to the podcast. So whatever we say, it's not going to get back to him. <laughs> I know 100% he's not listened to any episodes of this podcast, so we're safe. <laughs> well, he listened um, to the so... ones that he's attended. So he's got that much at least. Sure. All right. So we'll uh, we'll introduce our uh, our guest host here. So Jordan Friedman is an R three internal medicine resident here at uh, UBC, and he has kindly prepared a case for us. Hey, Jordan, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Oh, thanks for uh, being here, Jordan. Man, you're keeping the show alive. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Jordan, Jordan, and I actually just worked together like like a month ago or something, and he was he crushed it. He was so good. So if he found a case of vexing then it's probably a good case. And mm. I probably can't solve it. <laughs> so we'll see what he, uh, he comes up with. Could I pause this briefly before we start? Could I just make a quick ask? Yeah. You know, I historically struggle with renal tubular acidosis. Well, I think <laughs> the universe does. has caught on. The universe has caught on. And, and now I've, I've been sent a couple of tricky renal tubular acidosis cases. And so for anyone who may be listening to this, if you are an expert in renal tubular acidosis, please, for the love of God, get in touch with me and maybe we can hammer out a case or, or two on the show. I am struggling to sort out uh, renal tubular acidosis like clinically in the real world. So just uh, calling out there to the universe, please give me a hand. Is it possible to just categorize certain like certain maladies as too irritating to solve? Do we have any space for that to be like, no, we we can't learn this one. It's too hard. It, it shouldn't be too hard, honestly. Like there's <laughs> so many good tables for this and like algorithms and I just can't do it. So I, I have a, in mind a few people who I think know a little bit more about RTA than I do. But um, if someone out there is brave enough to teach this to me on the show, I would love to hear it. That sounds great. All right. So okay, uh, Jordan. there's no new news. Then Jordan, yeah, we'll hand it over to you. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited to share this case. It was a particularly challenging one diagnostically. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes today. So I saw a 56 year old male. He is a very healthy, active guy. He does a lot of climbing, ultimate frisbee, volleyball. Uh, he works in soft software. He lives locally. Has a roommate. No family and no kids. Uh, he was born in India, but grew up in Canada. And he is an extensive world traveler. So he's been all over, like third world, first world, everywhere you could think of, pretty much every continent as well. Uh, no alcohol, smoking, or cannabis, no drug allergies. Uh, his sister has lupus, but it seems to be a pretty mild disease in, in her case, no significant complications, and no other pertinent family history. His own medical history is significant for uh, developing membranous nephropathy in his youth. And he went on to actually have a, a kidney transplant 
from his sister, who was the donor. He now has a baseline creatinine of about 130, and he takes cyclosporin, 50 milligrams twice daily, and azathioprine, 25 milligrams daily for anti-rejection medications. Otherwise, he does have a history of asthma. It was quite severe in his youth. He would go to the hospital up to a couple times a year, but now it seems to be very well controlled. He'll have a flare every five years or so. He only uses Ventolin on a PRN basis. And otherwise, he's quite healthy. Bit of osteoarthritis of his knees, mild prostatic hypertrophy, but no other medications. He came into St. Paul's with a four-week history of abdominal pain and fatigue. The pain, he described, kind of two main characteristics. One, one area or one part of it was epigastric, so he had bad esophageal reflux. But he also had some lowing, lo, sorry, lower cramping pain, which was postprandial in nature, so lower abdominal postprandial pain. No vomiting or diarrhea. Uh, he did have some weight loss, which he thought was secondary to just not wanting to eat food anymore, because every time he ate, he started to get pain. He did notice that he had some fevers and chills, but he never recorded the temperature. No night sweats. And otherwise, on review of systems, he didn't have any significant other symptoms that he endorsed. So I'll give you his initial labs and his initial imaging as well, and then maybe we'll pause just to hear your thoughts. So uh, in emergency, he was noted to have a white blood cell count of 14, and the differential showed an elevated eosinophil count of 5.1. The rest of his cell lines were normal. He had a hemoglobin of 135 and platelets of 470. His electrolytes were normal. His renal function was at baseline. His urinalysis was bland and his CRP was 32. Because of his uh, significant abdominal pain, he went on to have a CAT scan of his abdomen, and it showed enteritis of his small bowel. The differential, as they always say, includes infectious and inflammatory etiologies, but they thought that an ischemic etiology was less likely. They didn't see any arterial or venous abnormalities, and they did comment that graft-versus-host disease is a possibility. I should mention as well with his medication, so he takes his cyclosporin regularly, but he does not take his azathioprine. He'll, he'll maybe take a dose every week or so, but he's not very compliant with that one. I'm not totally sure why. So maybe we'll pause there. So just to summarize kind of the four weeks of abdominal pain, enteritis on his CAT scan, peripheral eosinophilia, and a CRP of 32. So any initial thoughts, things on your mind, further tests you'd like? This travel, Jordan, is any of it recent? Uh, so he, most of it was in like the 1990s. He was going like uh, Nepal, Pakistan, China, Thailand, Peru, Chile, Argentina. And then in the early 2000s, he was in India, Sri Lanka, Morocco, Turkey, but nothing really in the last five years. Oh, actually, sorry, my apologies. In the last five years, he went to Eastern Europe as well as Thailand and Bali. No history of bowel infections, and I, I mean, probably there is, right? Probably, <laughs> probably he's had a bowel infection um, or two along the way. Yeah, that's a it's a good question. I don't think I don't know if it's a good question when he came in. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't I know mean, if it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 the answer is probably yes, and I wouldn't know what to do yeah. with it. Like, like, is there anything that is so indolent and so persistent that you know, ten years later, you might diagnose a parasite? And ah, I don't know. I, I was just thinking like, so like we, we always kind of comment on not getting like anchored or focused on one individual thing, but also trying to look for the thing that is the most specific. And, you know, just looking at the things I've circled on, on my page. So from a history perspective, something being postprandial, like, I don't know, that's kind of a specific descriptor of the abdominal pain in terms of the labs, those eosinophils being as high as they are, like five, that is nothing to sneeze at. Um, mm -hmm. And I think 
even with like the enteritis on CT, this and that, like, I think the thing that connects the upper GI system to the lower GI system may be the the eosinophils. And since it, it also connects, potentially connects like travel history, autoimmune disease in the past, perhaps as the cause of like the membranous nephropathy, we don't really know. I find the eosinophils to be the thing that perhaps I am going to like early on, that's going to kind of be the thing I'm, I'm maybe trying to solve specifically and uh, work the case through that lens what but like as a general internist what do you what would you kind of what would be your starting point or would you keep it all kind of exploded out and uh, keep it in the the, word um, cloud issues list work them all up separate if the eosinophils signify allergic disease then they might be something to sneeze at whoa (laughs) very when did you Um, get here (laughs) (laughs) sorry i I think (laughs) you know i felt i felt actually like Maybe Barry had embodied me there for a second. That was weird. <laughs> yeah. I just I felt like that was sort of a yeah. weird Beetlejuice situation there. Um, <laughs> we're we're never so, truly rid of him. <laughs> He's always with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I think so. You're sort of talking about like what's the key log? You know, like right. what is the problem that is either so specific, has such a short differential diagnosis, or is so striking that you think it might be the the one the thread to pull on first. To help mm-hmm. this thing unravel, I, I think that's a way of going about a case. I think another way of going about a case is to say, okay, like the presenting complaint here is abdominal pain and fatigue, and so I have an approach to abdominal pain, you know, mm-hmm. and and just start like that. And then there's abdominal pain in the immunosuppressed patient. Mm-hmm. There's abdominal pain in the transplant recipient. There's abdominal pain in the world traveler Mm -hmm. and there's abdominal pain in the patient with elevated inflammatory markers and eosinophilia and and so those those are a little bit different they're or i think of them as being different they're not so much what's the key log they're like what is the lens through which i want to look at this case they're not like i'm going to pull at this thread and it's going to solve the thing for me it's more like i want to make sure that I'm keeping this person's context in mind. That, right. that the workup that I do for the immunosuppressed patient isn't exactly the same as the workup that I do for the immunocompetent patient. So, you know, I don't know that that's all that helpful just yet. But in terms of, of where I would start, I think what I would do is, you know, very generally speaking, I think about eosinophilia as having as signifying allergic disease, infectious disease. I think of them as like primary eosinophilic disease and then other. Is that kind of mm-hmm. how you think about it? Yeah. And I think each of those kind of like has its own sub list of, right, all sorts of things that, that fit under there, right? Like your allergic disease includes your drug exposures, your infections include all like a huge variety of types of infection. And I, I really like that. I, I, I like that phrasing that you use, like the framework could be you, you could it, it kind of almost even depends what sort of specialist is involved seeing them, right? Like if it was an infectious disease doc or a GIM, a, a general internist who who kind of, you know, skews more, uh, sees more transplant, let's say, then they're going to then they're going to look at it as infection in a, in a transplant patient, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if they do a travel clinic, they're going to see it as you know, abdo pain in a, a traveler. I think that that's really interesting. I think it it almost makes it it makes it a little hard to know exactly which framework to begin with. Mm-hmm. But I think this is one where, you know, in the summary when I was a resident and even now trying to like keep my summary like nice and concise, that can actually like this is one that perhaps 
all of that background history, I don't want to just, I wouldn't want to just put 56 year old traveler presenting with blah, 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 like all Mm -hmm. of all of those frames that you came up with, those are kind of part of that summary that keep you anchored around the fact that like, there's a lot of different ways to slice this case. And Mm -hmm. you're probably going to have to do a bit of each, like you're going to have to figure out the Venn diagram of overlap and and investigate those so that you're not you're not missing anything, but you keep that organized, because I think it would be, it'd be easy to lose track. There's even this extra like weird little wrinkle. So this is it's, it's, I find this whole thing really interesting. Like membranous nephropathy has its own associations. And then this guy got a kidney transplant from a lady who maybe when he got it, maybe we did or didn't know that she had lupus. And I think that's also really <laughs> right. interesting. Like, like to think about what are the implications of that? Like, yeah, anyway, I, I think that whole thing is very interesting. So I think the way I would start is to say, if I'm thinking about a Venn diagram, it would be like, things that cause abdominal pain and things that cause eosinophilia. And I would probably start Mm -hmm. there. I would think about infections of the gut, parasitic protozoal fungal infections of the gut. I would think about primary eosinophilic disorders of the gut, like eosinophilic enteritis. And then I I circled this graft versus host disease. I, I like that. I know a little bit about that. And I'd have to... I know that graft versus host, or my sense of it is that it can affect kind of any organ. And I'd have to look up whether graft versus host causes eosinophilia or or if that's mm-hmm. an association. In my mind, it's not, but I'd, I'd have to look that up. Right. Yeah, I think that sounds like a pretty great framework. So maybe maybe we'll we'll turn back to Jordan. So those are then, our initial thoughts. Also, <laughs> he's also not having diarrhea, right? So so the right. our ability to to test like let's say we're testing for infections it's a little tricky it's not like we can test this guy's stool for for parasitic infections and so on so so what jordan wants to know is how how do we move forward here i don't know if we can get a scope into the area of interest either to look or to biopsy um and i'm mm-hmm. guessing that we we might not be able to do that with the eosinophilia is there any testing either like serologic testing or anything like that, that we'd want to do? Hmm. I, I think like going through your checklist. So if we say like, okay, first things first, like he's a traveler, like what, what sort of infections could cause this? And like, maybe fine, like the, the clinical syndrome is not a perfect match. But the things I worry about in an immune suppressed person, who's also a traveler would be like just the common infections that cause eosinophilia. So like strongyloides, toxocara, look up the rest it's just though for sure it right like so so I, I think like we we do those serologies and i think even if he's not having diarrhea i would still like i'd be like geez like he has a different immune system than the average person i i think mm. we should still try and get those cultures anyways like presumably we could still find some ova and parasites uh, even if it's not diarrhea so mm. i think i'd still try and send that expansive ID workup. And I'd certainly have to kind of go through and be like, all right, where are the places you visited? What are the mm-hmm. bugs endemic to those areas? We're going to send for all those things. And and so that would be like the traveler workup. I think a, a trying to scope for biopsy would be helpful. But you're right, like maybe they're going to say no. But you know, but maybe we do that. And it just comes back saying eosinophilic uh, small bowel disease. And we're like, okay, <laughs> that's just kind of connecting two things we already like knew from our other investigations. That's not really an etiology. So we still have to solve. And then in terms of like malignancy stuff. So I think we're 
you know, the, the primary hyperacinophilia, I think we do like Jack, Jack testing mm-hmm. and a PDGFR testing as well, which I think is fish or flow cytometry. I can't quite recall. The other point I've made previously, and this is just my own belief or how I think about things, is mm-hmm. that patients who are immunosuppressed, I think of them more, especially when they're, yeah, when they're on medications that are causing their immunosuppression, I think of them as being maybe immunosuppressed, but also immune dysregulated. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I don't know, like, I wouldn't say this, this person definitely does not have early inflammatory bowel disease. That's also sort sure. of like back there in my mind, a thing that affects the small bowel causes like long pain, like, like, you know, weeks and weeks or months of pain. So still on my list. Let's uh, turn it back over to Jordan. See, uh, yeah. see what he thinks. Yeah, no, um, really good thoughts. I think that was very much in keeping with what the admitting team was thinking as well. So they wanted to have a closer look. So they did get GI involved for uh, endoscopy. They ended up doing both upper and lower scopes just because mm-hmm. he had symptoms on both sides. Uh, his upper scope uh, showed a hiatal hernia. So that's ultimately where his esophageal <laughs> reflux was thought to come from. They did take biopsies as well. And then and the, the, the biopsies scope... proved it was a hiatal hernia. <laughs> <laughs> biopsy exactly. proven hiatal hernia. That's how I'd write that in my past medical history. Nice. So the colonoscopy itself, they didn't, they didn't find any lesions that were particularly suspicious, but they also took biopsies. Remember on the CT scan, most of his inflammation was actually in the small bowel, so they couldn't reach mm-hmm. that with the colonoscopy. And then they also sent off some serological tests. Uh, so the ones that came back, you know, in the turnaround order of about a day or two, um, included an ANCA, which was negative, an SPEP, which was negative, an AM cortisol, which was normal normal B12 level. His IgE level was 1500, the upper limit of normal being about 500. His HIV, hepatitis B, C, CMV, EBV serologies were all negative. His syphilis was negative. Uh, They did send stool for ONP and it actually got repeated numerous times and it showed no intestinal parasites, but there were Charcot-laden crystals. And now we're about three to four days into his admission, and his eosinophil count has risen to about 10. So I'm wondering, with those tests, has this narrowed the differential at all? Any thoughts on empiric therapy or involving specialists? Mm. I am not at empiric therapy yet, for, first of all. like I have no idea what's going on, <laughs> and he's not sick enough. Yeah, um, does, he need, does he need steroids or reverse steroids? I don't know. <laughs> I would have no idea what to give him right now. So yeah, I agree. So... The high, the elevated IgE levels, I don't know, like they're high. I don't know if those are helpful at all. Like I think of a lot of these eosinophilic syndromes as being associated with ele- elevated IgE levels. I, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, <laughs> you I tell me again, Jordan, the, these Charcot-laden crystals, where were they? They were in his bowel? Yeah, so they were on the stool over in parasite exam. So yeah, it was in the stool sample. What on earth is like, okay, you're, you're going to have to teach me or what, what the significance of that is. That's not a thing that I know about. Yeah, it's uh, it's essentially just protein debris from eosinophils. That's as far as I went when I looked it up. But it, it just it's an indication that there is eosinophilia infiltrating at least uh, to the mucosa. Okay, hmm. so this, this solves one of the initial, I don't even know if you said it out loud, but what we're trying to sort out is, I mean, what we should have been trying to sort out at the beginning is, are these abnormalities even related or unrelated, right? Like we have a guy who has abdominal pain, enteritis on a CT and eosinophilia. I think mm-hmm. we start off with the assumption that these are all related, but now this makes me more confident that they're all related. Does that sound yeah, right, Yeah, that's Danny? fair. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I think like, I guess out of what I heard, I think we have a little bit more rounding out in terms of like common infections that cause eosinophilia. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just going to give some considerations and then I'd have to look up like, could it present with these syndromes? But things I think of free eosinophilia, aspergillus, uh, schisto, coccidioides, strongyloides, histo, uh, right? So so I think like I'd probably be doing a bit of reading around each of those entities and be like, could it present with like primary GI stuff? So I feel like infection is not excluded. I'm mm-hmm. not too impressed or I don't really care about the elevated IgE just because that often just pairs with the eosinophils in all sorts of diseases. So it's just so nonspecific, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, the the B12, uh, I can't remember if, if you said tryptase, but like those things are looking for, like, is this some kind of um, like hyper eosinophilic syndrome or uh, more primary eosinophilic disorder? I still think we need to consider uh, PDGFR testing. Maybe we need a bone marrow biopsy. I think I'm going to put that a bit lower on my list, like not jump to bone marrow biopsy just because someone has eosinophilia. But I think like we've talked about this before with eosinophilia is like the cause and effect. So like having high eosinophils for any reason can infiltrate any organ and cause all sorts of damage. And so just because you find a bunch of organs damaged by eosinophils, so in this case, maybe it's his small bowel, that doesn't mean the primary problem is the small bowel. That's just the end result of the hyper eosinophilia. Mm-hmm. So I just want to be cautious not to assume this is a primary bowel problem, though it could be, and kind of keep my eyes keep my eyes on like, okay, that is just an end organ damage. Maybe we need to characterize other end organ damage. So maybe we need a CT chest and an echo to make sure that there's kind of, this isn't a multi-organ problem. It's just stuck in the gut. And that would kind of maybe narrow some of the differential a little bit. Because, you know, the ANCA being negative for eGPA, that's like 50-50. So, so that has no negative predictive value for that diagnosis, though having no other features of the disease is helpful. His asthma sounds like childhood asthma. So, you know, that's not really part of the, the spectrum unless his asthma has been getting worse. But those are just like thoughts floating around in my head. What do you think, Steph? You know, I, I, I agree with all that. And I would also say, like, and I've said this, I think a million times, and I just think it's true. The two best doctors in the world are Time and Google. Um, the third best is very cousin, <laughs> but 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 um, what we should be doing is using the internet all the time, especially when we're yeah. out of our depth. Like I don't use the internet to look up the usual doses of Tylenol or furosemide anymore. Um, I can diagnose an MI without the internet, but like my grasp of eosinophilic diseases of the gut is pretty limited. So I go to Google, I type in eosinophilic diseases of the gut, as it turns out. The Canadian Society of Intestinal Research has an article dated September 1st, 2021, called Eosinophilic Gastrointestinal Disease. And so I haven't read this, but like I'm just I'm just pointing out that like let's take it easy with our egos here and just look things up. We should be looking things up all the time. We should all be voracious readers and detectives and admit when we don't know what we're doing and don't know something. So I would be reading the you know what out of this article and seeing if it points me in any new helpful direction. Totally. Okay, so I think we gave a couple of um, suggested additional tests there. Uh, What did the team in the hospital do, Jordan? Yeah, so I think they were still thinking infection was most likely just with his travel history. So they did want an infectious disease opinion. And interestingly, infectious disease was quite convinced this was strongyloides, even with the negative ONP. 
Uh, so with his extensive travel history, and they, they commented that strongloides can be dormant for up to decades and can reactivate mm. at any point. Mm-hmm. So they ordered strongloides serology, which is about 90% sensitive for mm-hmm. an infection. It takes several weeks to come back, so we don't quite get it yet. But they were convinced enough that they opted to just treat him empirically with ivermectin. Whoa, um, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Great. He did not have COVID. You know, sorry, just to reference a, an old case that we had, right? Like, ju- just to put this out there, right? You're the GIM staff, and this is your patient, and you have a confident subspecialty service that is not a generalist. They only focus on their area, usually, right? So you have an ID doc coming in, making an ID diagnosis, and that's like comfortable because you're like, great, we've we figured it out then. But just to harken back to an old case that we reviewed is sometimes it's not like like you still you still need to be cautious because you know at least do the exercise of saying okay major downsides of treatment could we cause any major reactivation of this um, side effect of this anything that's going to make things a lot worse or hurt this person before we go ahead with treatment so it's still gim's decision here to go ahead or not fair yes and and you know i think there's a lot going on here like one is you know, we may be dealing with an infectious diseases person who knows a lot about, you know, parasitic GI infections. And so this person has seen this pattern many times and, and this mm-hmm. is enough for them. Uh, and right. they feel that the upside of treating is, is greater than the downside of not treating. So I, sure. I get that, you know, the same would be true. Like, I feel like I can sniff out tuberculosis better than some people because I've spent like a decent amount of time in the developing world. And I've made that diagnosis clinically many times. And, and so I believe sometimes we're too slow to give someone empiric therapy for tuberculosis. I'm I'm okay with this. Like, so the other thing I would say is as the MRP service, it's our job. If we're uncertain about what this recommendation is, I think we need to talk to the consulting service. And, Mm -hmm. and what I see happen in a teaching hospital, Danny, and I don't know, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but sometimes what I see happen is like, the all the consulting services that are like on their own, they're having their own little conversation. And the information kind of flows from the attending physician to the fellow to the senior resident to the medical student who goes and writes the note. And the medical student is the one who's maybe communicated that information to my team. And mm-hmm. the medical student, they they love sounding really confident. So maybe the conversation was, oh, you know, we're not sure, but the eosinophils are getting pretty high. And now this guy's been in hospital five days and we should probably do something. And, well, you know, I don't know. We, we haven't ruled out strongaloides. Maybe let's consider empiric treatment for strongaloides. By the time the student gets back to my team, the ID student, the ID student says, we definitely think it's strongaloides, classic strongaloides. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it's just not. Yeah. Having <laughs> yeah. been that med student, I know I like, I listen to the conversation. I get totally lost. I start drifting off and looking around because I, just that's how long my attention span is. And then they're like, you got that, Dan? And I'm like, strongelades, got it. And, got and it. you go and write that in a note. You're right. Absolutely. So so I actually do think that's the source of a lot of um, irritation between services and hospital is that everyone or, or a lot of the time it's it's broken tel- telephone. So you get a lot of prize or you get the different attitudes communicated that, that were never there. Um, or even yeah. opinions communicated that like it was never that strong a recommendation or yeah. or, or, or false. And that's, of course, not the fault of um, the trainees. It's just, you're right, we have to be kind of better about typically what I do if I like know the staff or even if I don't, but like I just try and get a hold of them and have a quick call if it's a really yeah. big 
deal. Like if someone's yeah. getting chemo, uh, I should definitely talk to that staff, staff to staff and make sure that like we're on the same page um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just showing up and writing a bunch of uh, wonky orders. It's not that mm-hmm. helpful. I think so, everyone so, needs to be on the same page. Yeah. So, so like pro tip here for those of you planning on working in an academic teaching center when you finish, uh, you should dedicate, if you're working on inpatient services, you should dedicate 10% of your day to speaking with other attending physicians to make sure you understand what's going on with your patients. 10 or 15% totally. of your day should be spent on the phone with other staff people, just coordinating and, and making sure that you're satisfied with the decisions that are being made. If you're not spending that much time on the phone with other people, you're probably not doing it right. That's that's my sense. I agree. All right. So empiric ivermectin. Booyah. I love that. I like it. I don't love it, actually. I've oversaid that. I My interest is peaked. I, I don't love it. I'm in love with it. I think Ooh. it's that. <laughs> well, marry it. All then. right. So, yeah. so Jordan, so what, what, uh, how did he respond to the ivermectin? Yeah. So he got two doses and then they also sent off some other serologies, uh, namely like schistosomiasis, like you guys mentioned, which came back negative and his eosinophil count trended down. So he got two doses and then about two days later is when they peaked. So I didn't quite give that to you in the right chronological order. I'm sorry. But then uh, within about four to five days, they started to trend down to 5.6. And GI had ordered an MR enterogram as well, just to have a better Mm -hmm. look at the bowels. That was done about a week after he got the doses, and it showed interval improvement. His symptoms also started to get a bit better, so he was discharged with both infectious disease and GI outpatient follow-up. So I'll give you kind of what happens next here as well. So he sees infectious disease about a week after he's discharged. He still has peripheral eosinophilia, his level is about 4.2 now, and he still, he started to get some abdominal pain again. So, and his uh, strongyloidy serology had not come back yet. So ID opted to give him a third dose of ivermectin. And the same day he was seen by GI and, and GI wondered, you know, maybe this actually isn't um, infectious whatsoever. Maybe this actually is more of like a, a systemic autoimmune disorder like oh, GPA. No. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. So they, they, yeah, they raised the concern of that and they actually opted to start him on prednisone. Oh, um, no, 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 no. no. So, <laughs> so they prescribed him no. with 60 milligrams daily of prednisone. No, no, um, no, 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 no. <laughs> and referred him to rheumatology uh, as an outpatient. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, this the is patient. another another pro tip. If you're going to refer to rheumatology, maybe like a, a real quick call to like run the case by them to be like, are you okay if I blow them away with prednisone before you see them? And then be like, actually, I can fit them in tomorrow. And then we can like <laughs> piece some of it together. Or, or maybe like, yeah, that's a great idea that like do that. And then like everyone's on the same page. But like arthritis is a perfect example of like they show up in your clinic and they're like 100% fine because they got tons of prednisone and you're like what am i what am i supposed to do now i don't even know what you <laughs> i don't know what i'm looking at so uh maybe also worth a, a just a quick call it's not just that i mean totally, de- totally. yeah for sure like from the rheumatologist perspective that's problematic but also you have an id specialist who's pretty sure that this patient has a parasitic infection oh yeah and there are real potential consequences of treating someone with steroids in the setting of a of an active parasitic infection like totally uh, this is one of be, those infections this is one that be, you do not give them prednisone they you can could be die. about to kill this person so yes. like take it easy take a breath 
I'm not going to criticize this person because I don't, I don't know, first of all, who it is or, or what the exact circumstances were, but holy crap, would I not do this? This is not a thing I've ever done or would ever do. I guess I, I like to sandwich my criticism with like good, good comments. So like, I like the confidence. <laughs> I don't. Um, but <laughs> I don't. All right. So, so Jordan, what, uh, what, uh, how, how do you do it on, on all that prednisone? That is ES well, went it's, down it's, for a time. I, I think the patient actually agreed with you guys. So he did his own research and he was like, I don't know if I should be taking this if I have strong good, So he good. initially didn't take it, but then his pain started to get worse and eventually he filled his prescription and started taking no. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had, he had taken maybe about three or four days worth of it, but his abdo pain still wasn't getting better. So he came back into Emerge. He was just starting to get anxious at this point. He wasn't really sure what to do. Fair enough. So this is where I ran into the patient. Um, I was on rheumatology at the time, and he came into the Emerge, and GI asked us to do an inpatient consult, just kind of an expedited rheumatology consult. And the specific question being, does he have eGPA? So before I kind of go into... Uh, my own history and what I gathered from him, um, his pathology result was available from the colonic biopsy. And what it said was, you know, as pathology can sometimes be a little bit nebulous, we like it to give us an answer, but it doesn't always. So it said there was a focal submucosal non-necrotizing granuloma. Hmm. There was no vasculitis identified. There were no mycobacterial organisms. And their comment was, there is eosinophilic inflammation uh, of the submucosa uh, with non-necrotizing granulomatous disease. The differential includes eosinophilic enteritis, parasitic infection, systemic hyper-eosinophilic syndromes, or eGPA, and then correlation with imaging and lab studies recommended. So still very broad. But not lymphocytic. It, it, it's, it doesn't fit with, for example, like graft versus host. I think, you know, we, we kind of dropped that off mm-hmm. a while ago, but that's helpful ish. Mm-hmm. Totally. Also, like yeah. I would say, IBD is is lower on our list. Doesn't sound like classic IBD. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they said, yeah, they said it was not consistent with IBD. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's, so, those are some answers. That's helpful. We're in the same ballpark that we were in previously. Yeah, but feel like we're building to something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not just because we're forty minutes in, so we're we're almost done, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> we better build into something. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jordan. Right, Sorry, go ahead. So, yeah. So, I mean, I asked the, the typical questions associated with eGPA. So, some pertinent positives and negatives. He had had this asthma, as you know, from his childhood, but it was quite stable recently. He never had any uh, ENT-type symptoms, but there was a CT head in the early 2000s, which did show evidence of sinusitis with a polyp but he's never had any recurrent sinus infections or discharge or crusting, no rash, no peripheral neurological symptoms um, that would suggest mononeuritis. And he had, as I previously mentioned, no renal involvement and no worsening of his asthma recently. He also had no cardiac symptoms and we ended up getting a trope in B and P, which were negative or sort of normal. Ultimately, we weren't sure, you know, there's features there were features on his history, like with the sinusitis and the history of asthma and the eosinophilia. There were features that could be consistent with eGPA, but I mean, going through the diagnostic criteria, he didn't meet it, meet the criteria at the time. So we opted to review the pathology with the pathologist to see if there's any anything else we could tease out um, and to see him in follow-up. We asked him to lower his prednisone down to 30. 
and his strongyloidy serologies had come back at this time and they were negative. So mm. I think everyone on the team was was pretty convinced that this was not strongyloides. Huh. So <laughs> any thoughts on that? Um, so I think uh, hematologic causes of hyperosinophilia remain on my list. I think infection is lowered. Like it sounds like there's been reasonable workup. There's even been partial treatment even though that that didn't work out to be the the infection. I would say EGPA is not excluded. It's a frustrating disease, I find, or, or I don't know what your experience has been, Steph, but in my my experience, it can be quite frustrating just because asthma is common. Rhinosinusitis and polyps are common. And, and so y- you are still trying to find a rare disease through a bunch of common diseases. And so I think it's really easy to make the diagnosis in anyone who has asthma and a high eosinophil count and told you they had a rash once. You go, oh, you have EGPA. And that's easy, but it's not accurate. And here, so you have gastric involvement. Like I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of checkbox. You could say asthma, rhino, like some amount of sinusitis and GI involvement and very high eosinophils right? Like you could compose a diagnosis that way, but it's about context, right? It's like, well, this asthma is childhood asthma and it hasn't changed recently. The guy's never even been symptomatic from sinusitis. So like how how pathologic is the sinusitis that was found on a CT that wasn't even done for that reason? And so I would be very reluctant to jump to a diagnosis of a super like 15 in a million uh, disease just because we can. And um also that he didn't have much improvement on high dose prednisone. I mean, three days is a very short period of time. So I don't consider that a failure of prednisone, but I um, it, it, it didn't, it didn't blow anyone away. So I think I'm kind of more in that neighborhood now, Steph, what do you think? Mm, I don't know. I think this reminds me of how tricky it can be to work someone up when they're, when they have like abnormal immune system function, like is this guy immunosuppressed or immune dysregulated or whatever? Like, I even wonder, you know, we, we have this idea of performance characteristics of serologic tests, but we think of those as, as universally applicable to everyone when it's probably mm-hmm. true that like a test that's 90% sensitive in the general public is maybe not as sensitive in a patient who's immunosuppressed. So, you know, the strongyloides serology may be super duper specific, but is it 90% sensitive in in a patient on cyclosporin? I don't know. Uh, so yeah, great question. I'm not, I don't mean to like, at some point you have to close the book on these parasitic infections, but some thoughtful infectious diseases expert who saw this case early, went back before it was muddied by prednisone, thought this was a parasitic infection. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, you know, I haven't let go of that. But before we embark on any, on any other like more potent immunosuppression, oh boy, I'd, I'd be, I'd be going back to that, the ID team and saying, how else, you know, this guy's immunosuppressed. Can we trust these serologies? And is there any other way we can make that diagnosis or, or whatever? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's smart. I see people die of infections more than die of, of EGPA, you know? <laughs> right. Fair enough. All right. So what, uh, what did you guys do in hospital? Well, he didn't actually get admitted. Uh, we just followed him up a week or two later as an outpatient. And after talking to pathology, they they didn't really find any compelling features of eGPA, and that was our main question. Like they said, there wasn't vasculitis that they could see non-necrotizing granulomas. So they said, I should, you know, I should say this could that all... they, 
I should say they usually don't find vasculitis on a GI biopsy. So, mm, so that actually isn't isn't an exclude. It's not a very good exclusion test. Um, usually, you just get that submucosa and tons of eosinophilic inflammation, maybe some granulomas, like we saw here. It can be necrotizing. If you do find vasculitis, then you're like, oh, that was a freebie. But but I'd say like not to be expected. So mm-hmm. so um, I'd keep that in our heads. Good to know. Yeah. So um, we opted to to do actually as you had suggested to uh, work him up from a hematological perspective uh, for the eosinophilia. So we did do flow cytometry on his peripheral blood and looking for lymphocytic variant type or eosinophilic syndrome, sent off his triptes, uh, IgG4 levels. And we referred him to, to Luke Chen, who's like one of the hematologists who takes an interest in eosinophilia. From that initial workup prior to seeing uh, Dr. Chen, his flow cytometry came back normal uh, his triptase was normal, but his IgG4 level was highly, highly elevated, almost oh, no. at 10, the upper limit of normal being 1.25. <laughs> and the comment on the, the lab test is saying that this is highly specific for IgG4-related disease um, at this level. So uh, just before I you know, get into the final part of the case here, just wondering what you guys think of, of those tests. <laughs> I think like... It, it is more specific, like the higher it is, the more specific it is. IgG4 on its own is not a specific test for IgG4 disease. And I find this clinical presentation to not fit with IgG4. So I find that a bit of a surprise that wasn't, you know, high on my list. Yes, it totally can cause hypereosinophilia, but IgG4 usually has like fairly characteristic patterns of involvement and uh, just exclusively gut involvement. I am is a bit of a surprise, so I, I'm very curious what uh, what you guys and and Luke Chen had like what your interpretation was of that. That is a high IgG four level for sure. Mm-hmm. Certainly was pretty high. Definitely uh, piqued everyone's interest. We we agree with actually exactly what you said. Like there was no lymphadenopathy, no glandular symptoms, like really nothing clinically to suggest IgG four related disease. We did go back and ask pathology to stain his tissue for IgG four, and it came back negative. So we found oh, like that go. was probably yeah a, a non-relevant uh, laboratory marker. Good, but we're <laughs> still we're still of, big list of things. You know? Yeah, big list of things that can yeah. cause uh, high IgG four. Absolutely. Do you guys want to hear how this all turned out, or do you want to give your final thoughts? What do you think he has? Oh yeah, I guess we should kind of should put some uh, some money down. Steph, do you want to? What do you What do you think? What do you think he has? I think he has an infection. Hmm. That's, too like vague? that's a release. No, no, not at all. I think that's like a smart. That's a smart bet. I think <laughs> I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to say that he just has eosinophilic. I think he. I think he. he I, I'm going to say he has eosinophilic enteritis, and that is like as far as as we get. Yeah, interesting. So he ended up getting discussed at multidisciplinary pathology rounds and. Now, this might be another case of if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but uh, Dr. Churg was there and he looked at the pathology results and he felt like it was very much in keeping with eGPA, especially (laughs) with the story. Um, Now, (laughs) I was was trying... (laughs) Give me a break. (laughs) Oh, man. Doctors are so uh, dumb. Geez. We are we're so dumb. 
Oh, this thing we're, is named after me. I, I see it everywhere. Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> so he he felt like there. I only got the verbal report, and I actually gave him a call today just to ask him what his actual impression was. Um, he did not recall the case at all when I talked to him today. He was like, "Oh yeah, I came up in rounds." And he's like, "Hey, well, when you're so, reading like 20 eGPA trick stress cases a day, it's hard to remember." Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, one in particular. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So he felt, I mean, the verbal report that I got was he thought it was in keeping with the eosinophilic vasculitis. And on the basis of that, the team opted to start him on cyclophosphamide. Um, he did get referred to the vasculitis clinic for a second opinion. And that was thought to, to also be probably the most likely diagnosis based on his, on his clinical syndrome. Um, hey, I, so he, that, he has done well. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. When, 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 was that, when was that decision made? Uh, believe he was started on cyclophosphamide in early august so he's probably only gotten now a couple doses okay but if he if he was harboring some bad infection he it, it would have killed him by now so that's that's good like mm-hmm. the proof there is is in the pudding yeah, and and he's been on prednisone the entire time and he hasn't gotten worse great um great. so i guess you know if he did have strong aloides you would expect that to to be rip roaring by now yeah um, super and i you know the other just another like uh, quick thing like it was interesting that his eosinophils initially started to improve after ivermectin, right. which was <laughs> right. kind of one of the things that people people anchored on strong aloides because of that. And and maybe Dr. Ennis, you can comment on this, but he was started back on his azathioprine when he got admitted. So he had already been on um, regular azathioprine for about uh, like a week and a half, two weeks. Like that might be a little soon for it to start to work, but the thought was maybe that's why his eosinophils were starting to improve. Um, so it was kind of... Yeah. I, I would say it would be more likely that the AZA was causing cytopenias <laughs> than like, so everything was just, everything was coming down a little than that it had kicked in and was helping to induce remission of eosinophilic vasculitis. So a couple of things here, like that's not a crazy diagnosis. I think it's just like, well, you could just have easily have just left it as this person has an eosinophilic enteritis like not named because this person has no defined vasculitis anywhere Mm -hmm. so far so so that you know we didn't we didn't get into it too deeply but the other problem with egpa besides there being an eight to ten year latency between the onset of asthma often like average and the onset of vasculitis is that what do you do with someone who who has gone from the asthma phase to the eosinophilic phase and now their eosinophilia is so bad that it's infiltrating organs. However, they do not have vasculitis yet. Mm-hmm. How do you diagnose that person with vasculitis? And and so there is a, a term, I, I hope I get it right, but there's a label that was floated around that was, well, don't call it eGPA because they don't have vasculitis yet. Call it hyper eosinophilia with systemic symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, there, there was a, a paper that specifically described that as the proper label. And I, I've kind of either used that or, you know, pre-EGPA or possible EGPA just because like, man, like you don't have vasculitis yet. <laughs> so how, right. how, are, how am I going to commit you to chemotherapy? Like I'm going to give you cyclophosphamide and I'm not positive what your diagnosis is yet. On the flip side of that is that if you have EGPA and you have bowel involvement, the bowel involvement can be extremely hard to treat and is a very poor prognostic indicator. So it's it's often refractory. It often requires lots of steroids. You often can't get the steroids down. And so, you know, this person may have ended up, so, it, so maybe, 
you know, I, I, of course, I wasn't part of any of these conversations. But maybe if I saw them, and I said, like, well, you know, I appreciate that input. I'm not I'm not actually not ready to clinically label them as vasculitis. So we're going to do we're going to give them a proper non homeopathic dose of azathioprine appropriate medication, make sure their cyclosporine is well dosed, and we're going to give high dose prednisone that we're going to taper. And if that fails, then we will use um, cyclophosphamide. I could be wrong, and that might, you know, overexpose them to prednisone ultimately, or or maybe I'm right, and the azathioprine and cyclosporine is a decent combo that keeps them in remission, and we spared them the cyclo, because we didn't know for sure, for sure what the diagnosis is. None of that was meant in any way as a criticism, such a hard case, but um, it does feel like it, it kind of depends which pathologist you got. Um, if you got not um, Andy Churg, who is the son of Churg from Churg and Strauss, but you got Dr. Enteritis, daughter of <laughs> a discoverer of uh, eosinophilic enteritis, then maybe they would have said, oh, this is classic uh, primary eosinophilic enteritis you know, because there's no vasculitis. And, and so I, I don't feel like compelled to go along with that label, because I think it is still a probability game at this point. I Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why I was really curious to hear from Dr. Churg, like how compelled he was to believe mm-hmm. that this was vasculitic, because I think everyone, the decision to pursue cyclophosphamide was on the basis of, of his opinion. So yeah, it is interesting. And, and you know, I did do some research around this myself. And yeah, during the eosinophilic phase of eGPA, like it is actually quite common to get eosinophilic enteritis, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't treat that, like correct me if I'm wrong, you wouldn't treat that with cyclophosphamide. Cyclophosphamide is reserved if there is evidence of vasculitis, right, with end organ dysfunction. If it was just like eosinophilic phase GPA with eosinophilic enteritis, then you would just use steroids or azathioprine, like you said. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think you might get different opinions on that. But if you've not yet developed vasculitis, then we don't know what your diagnosis is yet. And so that person needs, you know, I, I think it would be very reasonable for at some point for that person to get a bone marrow biopsy, make sure it's not an eosinoph- a primary eosinophilic disorder, right? The uh, FIP1, L1 testing, the JAK testing, all, all the triptase, like all the stuff that you did, like I would mm-hmm. stay in that diagnostics phase and I would not yet, like, I think I would have hit my treatment threshold for steroids and adjusting baseline immune suppression. And I would not have hit my diagnostic threshold for an extremely rare, very specific disease um, mm-hmm. with all this other noise and the absence of worsening asthma or other common features like skin involvement, renal involvement, peripheral neuropathy, sinonasal involvement. So this person lacks a lot of the classic features and their childhood asthma, if it was like more than 10 years ago that it started, maybe that's just normal asthma. And um, so, so I think to that end, I think steroids would have been appropriate. I don't think it's inappropriate to be aggressive because of, as I said, like the, the bad progno- prognosis. If, you know, you just get a slightly deeper biopsy or somewhere you... You, you biopsy somewhere else in the gut and you find vasculitis, well, bing, like then you have an eosinophilic vasculitis. So, you know, maybe the line between no diagnosis and a formal rare diagnosis is actually quite a, a fine line here. But I, I think I am, maybe I'm a little bit conservative just because of lack of experience, but I would, I'd be reluctant to jump to the real, the, the weird and wonderful until we're, we're sure about it. How would you approach that stuff? No, man, I, I, honestly, I'm just sitting here learning. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm just I mean, riffing. I, I don't know the yeah. answer here. I'm just no, no. Just, I, I think yeah. that that all sounds right. My, I, I have more of like a dumb, dumb question. Actually, my my question is, like, the guy has a renal transplant. He happens to be sort of on what I think of as rheumatologist's immunosuppression. He's on cyclosporin and imuran, and mm-hmm. and he's not on. I mean, it seems like to me more commonly, I see people with renal transplants on stuff like mycophenolate and problemus mm-hmm. or other things. So I'd also, I wonder like when you're thinking about immunosuppression, do you, will you then like just pick up the phone and call the, this patient's transplant doctor and like try to talk through your immunosuppressive strategy? Cause we're not talking about primary immunosuppression of the immunocompetent patient here, right? We're talking about right. some pretty fine tweaking of a very complex system. Like Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this would be, I, yeah. I mean, I did a degree in immunology and I am completely overwhelmed here. <laughs> I, I think I would do exactly that. Like, I don't, I would never pretend or, or like think that I know enough about uh, transplant medicine to be like, oh, yeah, I, I've seen them use MMF. I'm okay to use that. <laughs> right. Um, because, like, I don't know the ins and outs of that. Like, I'm not going to fuss with their medications without asking permission. And then, like, I, I think it's not that hard to come up with a game plan if you just kind of chat about it over the phone, like, okay, this, this guy had a transplant like 30 years ago or whatever. I, I'm thinking of these medications. What's the minimum dose of prednisone I can go to? W- what's going to be our maintenance agent when we come off of uh, cyclophosphamide? Like, what, what do you right. want him to be back on? Because right. I don't want him to be on cyclophosphamide and all this stuff. Or maybe they say, oh, even with cyclophosphamide, we really require that cyclosporin on there. Mm-hmm. For some reason, right? Like maybe that's how we're like. That's not something that I would know, even though I I do treat some patients with vasculitis. So I would definitely phone a friend there. I think this is like a this is a total team sport. And right. I would also ask ID. I'd say like, hey, like we're going to give this person extremely potent immune suppression. What sort of prophylaxis do you want? Is there a possibility of TB exposure? Right. right? Like I mean, we'll do an autograph right. or, or TB skin test, but yeah. you know. He has a long travel history. Do we need to have, you know, be on strongyloides treatment or complete a full treatment course for strongyloides or what what do you guys want? And Mm -hmm. I I think everyone gets to weigh in in this case so that we feel like, okay, there is no holes in this person's therapy. We've kind of really thought of everything. And since everyone's engaged in the case already, like Mm -hmm. it takes a minute to send a quick note off to to ask a very precise question to to each of the treating physicians, I think. You know, sometimes, honestly, I feel like my role here, especially in a case like this, Danny, is that I'm trying to like just highlight for the people listening, like the mechanics of how some of these cases unfold. And so so the communication here, I think, is super duper important when it comes yeah. to like these decisions that you're talking about. And and I'll just let people know, like, this is a thing. This is part of practicing medicine in the real world. And it's something you're not going to get paid for. Just so you know, like the, the, <laughs> yeah, the thoughtful, totally. <laughs> the thoughtful, careful, considerate you know, analysis of these difficult decisions and communication around those decisions and coordination, you need to do it. It's really important. It, it dramatically affects your patients' lives and you're not getting paid for it. So even like when you're out there in the world and you've got your mortgage and whatever, and you're trying to think about how to run your clinic, these are the ones, fortunately, not every case is as complex as this, but these are the ones where you're just getting underpaid and it's okay because there's also going to be some easy stuff where you get overpaid, but just... I'm trying to put in a good word for some of this basically pro bono work that I know you do and that I certainly do too. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, totally true. And I think you will instantly get burned if you're like, eh, I'm just going to like pose a bunch of stuff in my note, 
my outpatient yeah. note and I'm going to fax it out and like, you know, a family doc will send it around or whatever. Like, no, like make sure that you are sending the note to everyone, including the family doctor. Don't leave them out. Who's going to take care of the vaccines, right? Like who's in charge of each piece? Mm-hmm. And so maybe on these cases, like the general internist may be a coordinator of care or the rheumatologist, whoever, right? Like it, it just depends but there's no avoiding how complicated some of these cases are this is not someone who you can do a five minute follow-up with yep. and 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 you shouldn't like there's there's no point like you're you're gonna frustrate yourself in that patient and i think these are cases where like if you do cut corners you'll cause some harm yep. so i totally agree and yeah and yes you will not get paid but i think it's just the job right yep cool man sweet Jordan, case. that was great yeah thank you so much yeah it's a pretty crazy one also, just a final addition, that IgG4 level, um, as you mentioned, Dr. Ennis, there's definitely a broad differential for it, but both eGPA and Castleman's are, are notorious, apparently, for causing significant IgG4 elevations. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of one of the rationalizations for it. Yeah, I, I um, think that's, yeah. A, that's a clever connecting of dots. I think that's a, it's a clue, right? Cool. Well, yeah. Sounds like you did a so, lot of detective so, work, man. That was really great. You're welcome right. back well, anytime, we'll, Jordan. Uh, So we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.